Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. April 4th, 2022. Let's start with a special announcement. We're uh, super grateful to all the donors and subscribers who have uh, come to, to support our work and support the Future of Ukraine Fellowship. As of uh, mid-March, uh, all of the collections uh, through subscriptions and donations that we receive on our page are devoted to build up a Future of Ukraine Fellowship program. And we've gathered more than 12,500 euro. I mean, I don't remember the exact amount. Anyway, it's increasing constantly thanks to you, to our listeners, and, um, and everyone else who is following us on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and especially, of course, who reads our analysis in, uh, in English on the Visegrad Inside uh, page, but also in national languages across the region. Thank you very much. And we will shortly present to all of you a um, select list of uh, the fellows uh, who, who at the same time have been applying for the fellowship. They are outstanding uh, first-class journalists, analysts, researchers, think tankers from uh, all across Ukraine, uh, most of them actually uh, in Ukraine currently, trying to carry on uh, their duty as uh, you know, truth-tellers and to come, come and um, take a peek at the propaganda and lies that uh, Kremlin has been spreading, not only about this war, but about the world we're living in. So it's really important if you care about democracy in Central Eastern Europe, uh, and I think that uh, Central Europe here is in the spotlight of the global struggle for democracy, then come and support this fellowship and, um, and great Ukrainian fellows um, to build up uh, secure and free uh, Europe and the rest of the world. I'm Wojciech Szubelski. Together uh, with me in the studio, there is Miles Maftien and Kamil Jarończyk. We'll narrate you the most important uh, um, events and trends and drivers of this week and month. Uh, this is beginning of, of the month when we r are releasing also our monthly foresight. Obviously, the stories of the weekend are elections in Hungary, and there are also elections in Serbia that uh, brought expected victory of uh, Mr. Orban and Mr. Vucic. These will be the stories of, of today's discussion, I'm sure, and my colleagues will uh, tell more about it. But let me just point you to my understanding of the dynamics that has been sealed, uh, set in stone, uh, in my opinion, as of this weekend, with Viktor Orban's victory in Hungary, uh, a very confident victory, uh, securing nearly two-thirds majority or two-thirds majority, in fact, just past, the, past that line, uh, that is something I would call a Pyrrhic uh, uh, victory, where he's entering in a period of a very difficult uh, economic uh, situation in Hungary, in a country which is small, dependent on the multipolar world order with, uh, with a lot of connectivity and uh, rule of law based uh, trade attached to it. And all of that um, resilience uh, for the economic uh, recovery post pandemic and now uh, 
with the war across the border depends on, on friendships and ties and alliances that Mr. Orban has been at least trying hard during this campaign. Saying at least, I, I am not on the side of, of being uh, very very shy of, of calling out what, what he really did as he, as he in his victory speech uh, said he was fighting Mr. Zawensky. And indeed, throughout the campaign, uh, Fidesz has been campaigning against Ukraine, um, has been building false history narrative that we have uh, also read from Maria Schmidt, one of the chief uh, politics of history ideologues of Mr. Viktor Orban's camp, and who tweeted uh, that in 1956, Hungarian revolution was crushed by Soviet tanks driven by Ukrainians, and with Mr. Khrushchev being Ukrainian himself, which is obviously a lie. I mean, Mr. Khrushchev was never born in uh, Ukraine, not even to Ukrainian parents, and he was only ordered by Stalin to command Soviet uh, Ukraine after it was captured by Moscow. Um, I think the big support that Viktor Orban has received, partly, of course, on prosperity and stability agenda, is also confirming a strategic direction that uh, Hungary is choosing, once again in history, standing on the, on the wrong side of history. And here Mr. Zelensky was right to point out to the Hungarian responsibility of the innocent victims being killed. Uh, Mr. Orban is winning these elections on election day when the massacre of Buka, uh, Bucha in, 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 in Ukraine, um, comparable to Srebrenica, comparable to the biggest atrocities of the Second World War has been revealed. And it is going to set the stage uh, for the future of Central European cooperation, which I think by now, as I wrote in my piece on Visegrad Insight and in Politico, ends the Warsaw-Budapest axis for a foreseeable future. At least a, 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 a generation change takes place in Central European politics. But that's me. And there are so many more uh, events and developments in Central Europe. Camille, you're preparing a monthly, uh, monthly foresight. So why don't you narrate us through uh, the most important uh, items? Yeah, um, so I'm authoring the uh, monthly foresight this week. Uh, the <clears throat> but uh, I uh, uh, requested from our numerous experts uh, to give their input to, to it. So it is very much um, um, a, for, a, a forecast um, uh, of uh, the be the best minds that we that we have of what April has to bring, and it really has to bring a lot. We cover not only the two elections which just happened um, expectedly with the victories of uh, 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 Fidesz in Hungary and the um, and Vucic in Serbia, but uh, we also cover the uh, the coming elections of April. Uh, the French elections, um, the French elections, and the uh, Slovene elections, um, which um, which will be of uh, which will be of course uh, a bit more tight than uh, than in these two um, in, than in the uh, two elections which just happened. Uh, so it is definitely um, yeah, so the the forecasts are very, are very timely. But something that uh, and then of course uh, Ukraine is is covered, especially uh, from the perspective of peace. Um, I had to actually. 
re revisit uh, revisit that um, after the shocking images. Uh, what was written uh, after the, what I uh, the shocking images of Bucha because it does not bode well for peace talks, um, of course, um, and um, and our U Ukrainian experts um, uh, would agree. Um, uh, uh, something that is covered that that isn't really in the new uh, that really isn't the, in the news is uh, uh, the uh, Russian minorities in Estonia and Latvia, which uh, of course, uh, um, which of course there have been some tensions rising over there, especially with uh, with uh, the atrocities the atrocities that uh, the uh, the Ru Russian army has been committing in Ukraine. Um, uh, between uh, Russian speakers, um, uh, the and the majority populations in the in those in those countries uh, about the Ukrainian refugees, but also um, uh, right after May, I mean right after April comes the 9th of May, which is a huge uh, holiday for many uh, Russian speakers within um, w within these countries, and um, uh, and uh, in many ways um, the. Uh, Latvians have already um, made it criminal to uh, show supports of the war uh, on in Russia's side. The Z, the V symbol, as well as uh, the ribbon of Saint George, which is the orange, orange and black ribbon. I'm sure our audience has uh, has seen it if they didn't know what it was called, the ribbon of Saint George, uh, which is a symbol of the Russian army. Um, the two, the those two Balt uh, the Baltic states with uh, Russian minorities uh, will have to be preparing and um, uh, for uh, the celebrations on the 9th of May, uh, and it is um, yet, yet yet to see uh, exactly how um, how these uh, tensions will be dealt with. So that's uh, something to be on the lookout for during April. Um, and within other parts of the region, some, something that happened in uh, for um, in the Baltics as well was uh, the cut off from Russian gas completely. Um, uh, we've heard from many parts of Europe, uh, uh, even uh, if Orban ran on it, uh, that it is um, very difficult, almost impossible to cut gas. Um, but the Baltic states uh, on the first of April have cut off gas from uh, from Russia and. Um, and uh, it will be a symbol uh, for the rest of Europe, I'm sure, to uh, to follow suit and uh, to to bring up um, as we here work with um, journalism uh, and uh, things. It is worth bringing up uh, one particular death of so many in Ukraine that the Russians have uh, have caused, which is uh, uh, Mantas Kvedara Chius, who was uh, filming a documentary in Mariupol. He was trying to evacuate. And was uh, was uh, killed by a Russian attack. Um, so it uh, just shows the one particular case of the brutality that so many people are facing every um, every day. Um, and the, of course, there the, the, there's so much more um, in lighter news. Uh, J Japanese, I think the Japanese foreign minister uh, is actually visiting Poland uh, till I think tomorrow, uh, Tuesday. Um, in order to help Ukrainian refugees return to Japan uh, or to come to Japan, those who want to, uh, as uh, because of uh, you know, sanctions and uh, the general situation around the world, the uh, the costs of planes have skyrocketed to Japan. Uh, so, in order to uh, help uh, those who uh, who want to, but also to uh, meet with Poland and to support Poland, uh, Japan has been one of the strongest uh, one of the strongest. Uh, pr uh, proponents or um, uh, advocates against uh, Russia within Asia, um, as well as even bringing up the uh, dispute over the Kuril Islands uh, uh, that have been 
occupied since uh, the Second World War. Um, and it just uh, shows um, further how uh, Japan is uh, advocating against advocating in Asia against uh, uh, Russia by uh, by coming to Poland, which has been visited by Joe Biden last week, and um, and uh, and trying to help in ways that it can. And these are just a few, a few, just a few stories uh, that uh, that we elaborate within our monthly foresight and weekly outlooks. So um, uh, so do uh, check those out when you yeah. can. Thanks, thanks, Camille, so much. Japan is interested in the region as major investment across the region for many decades. And it, and it indeed uh, sees the region as a counterbalance to the, uh, the barbaric, we can say, um, positions uh, of Russia. Um, okay, but indeed, uh, let's go back to uh, more of a European politics. And uh, we have a fantastic analysis uh, that, that we can talk about, right, Miles? That's right. <clears throat> So our project manager, um, Tatiana, who actually focuses on the Western Balkans, she recently wrote a piece on the possible scenarios of Serbia's post-election strategy. So what we already have seen based on the election results is that Vucic um, has won his second term as the president uh, of Serbia, but also his Serbian Progressive Party apparently takes the majority in the parliament as well. So Tatiana highlights that right now it's a little bit too early to tell what the new government is is actually going to do in regards to sanctions against Russia, for instance. Um, if we do see any sanctions, if these are adopted, it's very likely to be nominal. So without having any sort of real significant effect on Russia and Serbia. So from the point of view of geopolitics, remaining on Russia's side kind of makes very little sense for Serbia. Historically, Russian political support uh, hardly ever resulted in anything of, of substance here uh, for Serbia if they were to do so. And we know that if, if you're taking the side of, of Russia, as Tatiana says, this essentially means aligning with evil itself. So sticking with Russia, you risk having this loss of reputation beyond what it currently is for Serbia. And of course, along with that, it will be hit drastically by economic uh, consequences. So apart from the EU having financial cuts in such a case to Serbia, let's not forget that the Russian economy is bound to crash sooner rather than later uh, due to the sanctions that we have seen in um, the aggression that it has posed against Ukraine. So as of now, Vucic and his coalition have at least 90 days to think about this decision to set up um, the, the new government, to install the new government, um, and this won't essentially be functional. The new government won't be functional until August, but during this time, Vucic will essentially be able to resist the pressure from the EU side, but what route he will take, we shall see. Well, indeed, that is to be watched both in Serbia and in Hungary, as uh, clearly Viktor Orban will seek to repair some damage that was done through the campaign. I wouldn't exclude, for instance, um, a proposal he could put on the table to host the next three CEs initiative summit, 
uh, that nobody else currently uh, thinks about in 2023. But this will be all tainted by um, by the spoil by by, Ukra- by the Russian spoils of war um, in Ukraine that essentially are about uh, death and and atrocities um, that we have seen. And precisely this notion of where Hungary is today, what the after effects of the election are, uh, this is what we will be now transitioning to in our interview with Edith Zagut. Right now, I'd like to welcome Edith Zagut. Edith is a doctoral researcher at the Institute of Philosophy and Sociology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. Edith focuses on informal power and populism in the context of Hungarian and Polish democratic backsliding. So I know that Edith and millions of other Hungarians are watching um, the events unfold right now. And we just wanted to ask a few questions for our listeners. So the first is, you know, for years we've seen Orban tilting the playing field towards this landscape where his re-election campaigns are almost a certainty. From media capture promoting Orban's narratives to excluding the opposition through spending eight times more on billboard ads to intimidation and basically outright manipulation of voters. So let's start by actually discussing the, the integrity of the elections. Was this a free and fair election? I'm afraid these were rather manipulated elections than simply unfair. Hungary seemed to have reached a point of no return in a sense that social and institutional preconditions are tilted to such extent that it's almost impossible to replace Fidesz in elections. And there are formal and informal contributing factors to that. The legal factor is, I think, widely known. They designed the institutional environment to their full benefit. And one practical example is that due to gerrymandering, it's like a Fidesz voter has two votes and an oppositional voter has only one. And the manipulation of the elections shifted into a new gear as well, because we reached a point where oppositional ballots were burned in Romania and activists were delivering ballots to Hungarian minorities in Serbia. So this was fully untransparent, not to mention the fact that most marginalized groups are very often being intimidated to support the regime in power. Um, and what does it mean in practice? Like local uh, Fidesz brokers are helping in coercive vote buying. And that is, for example, why Roma political elite and the uh, Roma society is becoming more and more dependent on the regime. Um, and Viktor Orban is perfectly understanding the soul of the Hungarian nation. And and uh, he's, he's successfully uh, riding the wave of social attitudes. He could once again successfully exploit uh, existential anxieties during the war and mobilize better than the opposition, which, let's face it, um, it failed to make huge contrast uh, against Fidesz. Uh, but I think one of the most important advantage uh, Viktor Orban had is the permanent campaign since uh, you know they came to power in 2010 again, which is like a, a permanent civil war on the dissidents. Um, the regime is informally capturing the state and the economy, including the media to undermine the opposition, the European Union, and now Ukraine. And this is an abnormally skewed playing field 
world where the government does not tolerate any counter arguments. Um, so just to conclude, I think one of the main lessons learned is that we definitely what we definitely learn is that Viktor Orban's hybrid regime is getting more hegemonic than competitive uh, authoritarian regime at the end of the day. Well, I think we have seen what Orban has done since he came to power 20 years ago. When you think of the transformation of institutions, his centralization of, of power, the accumulation of wealth for his cronies, the homogeneizing of the media, and creating this sort of uneven election system. And with the events from the weekend, we see that it all has come to a head uh, during yesterday's election. So what are the implications for the Hungarian political system moving forward? So in a sense, what is Orban's next target? Well, he never governed by any books. Um, there is no written party program. And even if there is, like there was in 2010, Viktor Orban, you know, always does something else. Um, but I'm pretty sure that they're going to fulfill their main campaign message which was uh, Hungary moves forward and not backward, meaning that due to the nature of the regime, this informal hybrid regime will go further down the road of uh, autocratization. He has a super majority right now to further capture the remaining uh, key economic sectors with the help of his cronies, like the retail sector, for example. Um, and the regime will further sideline uh, the opposition in this, uh, so to say, central power field structure where Fidesz will divide the left and the far right into two different blocks for another four years. And also uh, there is still some space to restrict the general court system and they can also capture more media uh, still independent of, of the regime. Uh, and since this political system is not primarily determined by former or legal norms, uh, but by informal power, uh, they can do it in a way that they will simply look good, you know, on paper. One last question. So given their positional shift in the international sphere, and this decline that seems to be happening ever more so after the Hungarian government has been less than accepting to help Ukraine, but actually cozying up to Putin, will Orban continue down the path of this Eastern alliance with Serbia, Russia, and so forth, or will it actually move back towards Western alliances, NATO, the EU, and so forth to kind of appease uh, the damages that has been done during the election campaign. I think it's pretty indicative that uh, Prime Minister Orban named six enemies in his victory speech. The left at home, the international left abroad, uh, usual suspects like Brussels, George Soros, the international media, and which was kind of shocking, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. So I believe that he he quite um, obviously uh, set the directions of his Eurosceptic populist foreign policy, and he will keep dancing between the Kremlin and the EU. And for the moment, I don't see how he could consolidate his position all of a sudden, and I do not expect any sharp U-turns uh, towards the West. 
Um, this is going to be a very difficult four years for Hungary because of the emerging economic implications of COVID and the war. And I'm afraid that what we could rather expect is uh, meddling through with Russia and an intensified scapegoating um, bashing uh, procedure, blaming the EU and the West for most of the hardships. Hello, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Visegrad Insight podcast dedicated to the Western Balkans. My name is Tetiana Polagruic, EU Neighborhood Program Manager at Visegrad Insight. And this time I speak with Aleksandr Vasovic, a Serbian journalist with an extensive experience who cooperated with a number of renowned international news agencies and outlets and currently working with Reuters. Aleksandr, thank you for joining. Morning to you. Hello. Hello. We will mainly speak about elections in Serbia that took place this Sunday, April 3. And my first question is, were there any highlights during the electoral campaign that you might have noticed? Well, basically, as far as campaign goes, um, two things. Uh, the first one was that um, it was obviously the uh, ruling coalition and the uh, incumbent president, Alexander Vucic, were in obvious advantage. I mean despite uh, changes in the um, electoral legislation and, so, and, and, and um, different arrangements for media coverage of the campaigning. Uh, and the second one, that the campaign was clearly overshadowed by the conflict in Ukraine. So it did not help opposition because it shifted attention from its um, insistence on fighting against corruption, nepotism, environmental protection, and so on, to um, peace, stability, uh, in economic development, and uh, it also influenced voters, which is psychologically, which psychologically can be explained, to uh, gather around existing a government at the time of an armed conflict. Also, um, the um, campaign and the Ukraine conflict effectively effectively uh, um, put the, all the environmental issues that were so prominent uh, in um, the last uh, few months of 2021 totally on the back burner. And it will take time for these issues to become prominent once again. I see. Uh, what can we speak already about the preliminary results and perhaps any surprises in that regard? Uh, okay. According to uh, the uh, State Election Commission and the uh, preliminary vote count, because there's still period for uh, parties involved in the elections to appeal uh, and, 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 and for the... For the, for the uh, for the courts to rule on, on those appeals. So Vucic won around almost 60% of votes in the presidential in the presidential election. And that's something that was under the circumstances, it was something that was expected. The, 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 the second best was the Zdravko Ponoš, the opposition candidate. He got around 17%. The ruling SNS party, uh, party f- uh, fared less well, to put it that way, 
than in uh, 2020 simply because the opposition was present at the election and the opposition boycotted the elections in 2020 and now they will be they will have they will end up with around 40 3.4 maybe 44 percent uh and they will they will have to seek at least one coalition partner to secure <clears throat> stable majority in the parliament um opposition which is combined will have 91 deputies 91 92 depends on the on, on, on the election mathematics um that's a significant move that's a significant progress, and it's it will help, I would say, parliamentary life in Serbia, depending on how the ruling coalition would 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 act in the course of the next of the next four years. Um, so that remains to be seen. One important thing is the SNS, the ruling party, could not win Belgrade which might be a big victory for the opposition. Belgrade accounts for about one-third of, 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 of the Serbian population. Whoever holds Belgrade can have uh, uh, very much, if not decisive, influence on Serbian politics. So now, it, it, of course, the SNS won most votes, but the opposition combined, all of them, could create a new city hall. That... Again, um, remains to be seen how the opposition uh, will act, whether they will be able to overcome their uh, political differences and act together against the SNS. Vucic, together with his ruling Serbian Progressive Party, uh, faced a particular hardship during their campaign, and that is accommodating Serbia's claim to a political choice of joining the EU and very strong political, economic, but also personal connections to Russia, and all in the context of the war in Ukraine. Um, Serbian government came short of imposing sanctions against Russia so far, uh, which is an EU candidate country was supposed to do. Um, now the new government will have to make a final decision on this. And my question is, what decision will the new government take? And uh, will it finally impose sanctions against Russia? Ah, it's... Now it's um, uh, you have to bear in mind that, the, that there will be two, two, at least two things involved here. The first one will be um, and is that Serbia actually voted twice the United Nations condemning Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then Serbia will use that as a sort of a an excuse for not introducing sanctions if it decides to do so. So that's one thing. The second thing is Vucic now has ample time and his government will have ample time to think what they're going to do simply because they have 90 days to create government after the creation of the parliament. So I think that he will use all that time to the very last minute to create the government and then spend a little bit more time into... Um, creating ministries and everything else. So let's say that we will not have properly functioning Serbian government until sometime in August. So all that time, Vucic can resist Western pressures to introduce sanctions to Russia by saying that he simply does not have an acting, that, that he does not have a um, functioning government, that the, that the acting government cannot propose uh, 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 laws 
that he has to adhere to constitutional limitations. However, once that time passes, he will be he will have to make some sort of a decision. He said last night in his victory speech that uh, Serbia wants to continue its EU path, but it also wants to continue a partnership and friendly relations with the Russian Federation. I would say that it is more than anything a marriage of convenience because Serbia is hugely dependent on Russian gas and energy supplies. It failed to uh, diversify its energy supplies until it, 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 it does so. I think that we will be seeing that political fiddling around of, 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 of the Serbian government, fiddling around with both Russia and the West and trying to find some sort of a middle line. Whatever the decision will be, what do you think will be the consequences of, of, of any of them? Well, first of all, Serbia will try to avoid them or at least to minimize them. I mean, the ruling, the, the, the ruling coalition, whatever it might be. Um, uh, it will it will do absolutely everything if even if forced or should i say friendly persu- uh, 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 friendly persuaded by the west i think it would try to impose a little something to appease the west and not to infuriate russia so I think that's that that would be the most likely outcome. Let's say something along the lines of I don't know maybe uh 2014 sanctions over Crimea. Something as a token of goodwill but something which is not as pronounced or as or as decisive or tough what do you call it whatever as the current sanctions of the of the European Union. Or the West. Alexandra, thank you very much for this conversation again. Uh, I will only add that this uh, conversation was supported by the International Visegrad Fund. Thanks for that. Thank you.